0: Book 1, Part 1 of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume 1, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodribb. Book 1, AD Part 1. Rome, at the beginning, was ruled by kings. Freedom and the consulship were established by Lucius Brutus. Dictatorships were held for a temporary crisis. The power of the decemvirs did not last beyond two years, nor was the consular jurisdiction of the military tribunes of long duration. The despotisms of Cinna and Scylla were brief, The rules of Pompeius and of Crassus soon yielded before Caesar, the arms of Lepidus and Antonius before Augustus, who, when the world was wearied by civil strife, subjected it to empire under the title of prince. But the successes and reverses of the old Roman people have been recorded by famous historians, and fine intellects were not wanting to describe the times of Augustus, till growing sycophancy scared them away. The histories of Tiberius, Gaius, Claudius, and Nero, while they were in power, were falsified through terror, and after their death were written under the irritation of a recent hatred. Hence my purpose is to relate a few facts about Augustus, more particularly his last acts, then the reign of Tiberius, and all which follows, without either bitterness or partiality, from any motives to which I am far removed. when, after the destruction of Brutus and Cassius, there was no longer any army of the commonwealth, when Pompeius was crushed in Sicily, and when, with Lepidus pushed aside and Antonius slain, even the Julian faction had only Caesar left to lead it, then, dropping the title of Triumvir, and giving out that he was a consul, and was satisfied with a tribune's authority for the protection of the people, Augustus won over the soldiers with gifts, the populace with cheap corn, and all men with the sweets of repose, and so grew greater by degrees, while he concentrated in himself the functions of the senate, the magistrates, and the laws. He was wholly unopposed, for the boldest spirits had fallen in battle, or in the proscription, while the remaining nobles, the readier they were to be slaves, were raised the higher by wealth and promotion, so that, aggrandized by revolution, they preferred the safety of the present to the dangerous past. Nor did the provinces dislike that condition of affairs, for they distrusted the government of the Senate and the people, because of the rivalries between the leading men and the rapacity of the officials, while the protection of the laws was unavailing. So they grew, as they were continually deranged by violence, intrigue, and finally by corruption. Augustus, meanwhile, as supports to his despotism, raised to the pontificate and cural aedileship Claudius Marcellus, his sister's son, while a mere stripling, and Marcus Agrippa, of humble birth, a good soldier, and one who shared his victory, to two consecutive consulships. And, as Marcellus soon afterwards died, he also accepted him as son-in-law. Tiberius Nero and Claudius Drusus, his stepsons, he honored with imperial titles, although his own family was as yet undiminished, for he had admitted the children of Agrippa, Gaius and Lucius, into the house of the Caesars. And before they had laid aside the dress of boyhood, he had most fervently desired, with an outward show of reluctance, that they should be entitled princes of the youth, and be consuls-elect. When Agrippa died, and Lucius Caesar, as he was on his way to our armies in Spain, and Gaius, while returning from Armenia, Still suffering from a wound, were prematurely cut off by destiny, or by their stepmother Livia's treachery. Drusus, too, having long been dead, Nero remained alone of the stepsons, and in him everything tended to centre. He was adopted as a son, as a colleague in empire, and as a partner in the tribunician power, and paraded through all the armies, no longer through his mother's secret intrigues, but at her open suggestion. For she had gained such a hold on the aged Augustus, that he drove out as an exile into the island of Planacia, his only grandson, Agrippa Postumus, who, though devoid of worthy qualities and having only the brute courage of physical strength, had not been convicted of any gross offence. And yet Augustus had appointed Germanicus, Drusus's offspring, to the command of eight legions on the Rhine, and required Tiberius to adopt him although Tiberius had a son, now a young man, in his house. But he did it that he might have several safeguards to rest on. He had no war at the time on his hands, except against the Germans, which was rather to wipe out the disgrace of the loss of Quintilius Varus, and his army than out of ambition to extend the empire, or for any adequate recompense. At home, all was tranquil, and there were magistrates with the same titles. There was a younger generation, sprung up since the victory of Actium, and even many of the older men had been born during the civil wars. How few were left who had seen the Republic! Thus the state had been revolutionized, and there was not a vestige left of the old, sound morality. Stripped of equality, all looked up to the commands of a sovereign without the least apprehension for the present, while Augustus was in the vigor of life, could maintain his own position, that of his house and the general tranquillity when, in advanced old age, he was worn out by a sickly frame, and the end was near, and new prospects open. A few spoke in vain of the blessings of freedom, but most people dreaded, and some longed for war. Popular gossip of the large majority fastened itself variously on their future masters. Agrippa was savage, and had been exasperated by insult, and neither from age, nor experience in affairs was equal to so great a burden." Tiberius Nero was of mature years, and had established his fame in war, but he had the old arrogance inbred in the Claudian family, and many symptoms of a cruel temper, though they were repressed, and now and then broke out. He had also from the earliest infancy been reared in an imperial house. Consulships and triumphs had been heaped on him in his younger days, even in the years which, on the pretext of seclusion, he spent in exile at Rhodes he had no thoughts but of wrath, hypocrisy, and secret sensuality. There was his mother, too, with a woman caprice. They must, it seemed, be subject to a female, and to two striplings besides, who, for a while, would burden, and some day, rend asunder the state. While these and like topics were discussed, the infirmities of Augustus increased, and some suspected guilt on his wife's part. For a rumor had gone abroad that a few months before he had sailed to planesia on a visit to Agrippa with the knowledge of some chosen friends, and with one companion, Fabius Maximus, that many tears were shed on both sides with expressions of affection, and that there was a hope of the young man being restored to the home of his grandfather. This, it was said, Maximus had divulged to his wife Marcia, and she again to Livia. All was known to Caesar, and when Maximus soon afterwards died, by a death some thought to be self-inflicted, there were heard at his funeral wailings from Marcia, in which she reproached herself for having been the cause of her husband's destruction. Whatever the fact was, Tiberius, as he was just entering Illyria, was summoned home by an urgent letter from his mother, and it had not been thoroughly ascertained whether at the city of Nola he found Augustus still breathing or quite lifeless for Livia had surrounded the house and its approaches with a strict watch, and favorable bulletins were published from time to time, till, provision having been made for the demands of the crisis, one in the same report told men that Augustus was dead, and that Tiberius Nero was master of the state. The first crime of the new reign was the murder of Postumus Agrippa. Though he was surprised and unarmed, A centurion of the fittest resolution dispatched him with difficulty. Tiberius gave no explanation of the matter to the senate. He pretended that there were directions from his father, ordering the tribune in charge for the prisoner, not to delay the slaughter of Agrippa, whenever he should have himself breathed his last. Beyond a doubt, Augustus had often complained of the young man's character, and had thus succeeded in obtaining the sanction of a decree of the state for his banishment but he was never hard-hearted enough to destroy any of his kinsfolk, nor was it credible that death was to be the sentence of the grandson in order that the stepson might feel secure. It was more probable that Tiberius and Livia, the one from fear, the other from a stepmother's enmity, hurried on the destruction of a youth whom they suspected and hated. When the centurion reported, according to military custom, that he had executed the command, Tiberius replied that he had not given the command, and that the act must be justified to the senate. As soon as Selustius Crispus, who shared the secret, he had in fact sent the written order to the tribune, knew this, fearing that the charge would be shifted on himself, and that his peril would be the same whether he uttered fiction or truth. He advised Livia not to divulge the secrets of her house, or the counsels of her friends, or any services performed by the soldiers, nor to let Tiberius weaken the strength of imperial power by referring everything to the Senate. For the condition, he said, of holding empire is that an account cannot be balanced unless it be rendered to one person. Meanwhile, at Rome, people plunged into slavery, consuls, senators, knights. The higher a man's rank, the more eager his hypocrisy, and his looks the more carefully studied, so as neither to betray joy at the decease of one emperor nor sorrow at the rise of another, while he mingled delight and lamentations with his flattery. Sextus Pompeius and Sextus Apuleius, the consuls, were the first to swear allegiance to Tiberius Caesar, and in their presence the oath was taken by Seu Strabo and Gaius Turanius, respectively the commander of the praetorian cohorts and the superintendent of the corn supplies. Then the senate, the soldiers, and the people did the same for Tiberius would inaugurate everything with the consuls, as though the ancient constitution remained, and he hesitated about being emperor. Even the proclamation by which he summoned the senators to their chamber, he issued merely with the title of tribune, which he had received under Augustus. The wording of the proclamation was brief, and in a very modest tone. He would, it said, provide for the honors due to his father, and not leave the lifeless body, and that it was the only public duty he now claimed. As soon, however, as Augustus was dead, he had given the watchword to the Praetorian cohorts, as commander-in-chief. He had the guard under arms. With all the other agents of a court, soldiers attended him to the forum, soldiers went with him to the Senate House. He sent letters to the different armies, as though superior power was now his, and showed hesitation only when he spoke in the Senate. His chief motive was fear that Germanicus, who had at his disposal so many legions, such vast auxiliary forces of the Allies, and such wonderful popularity, might prefer the possession to the expectation of empire. He looked also at public opinion, wishing to have the credit of having been called and elected by the Senate, rather than having crept into power through the intrigues of a wife and a daughter's adoption. It was subsequently understood that he assumed a wavering attitude, to test likewise the temper of the nobles, for he would twist a word or a look into a crime, and treasure it up in his memory. On the first day of the Senate he allowed nothing to be discussed but the funeral of Augustus, whose will, which was brought in by the Vestal Virgins, named as his heirs Tiberius and Livia. The latter was to be admitted into the Julian family with the name of Augusta. Next in expectation were the grand and great-grandchildren. In the third place, he had named the chief men of the state, most of whom he hated, simply out of ostentation and to win credit with posterity. His legacies were not beyond the scale of a private citizen, except a bequest of forty-three million five hundred thousand sesterces to the people and populace of Rome, of one thousand to every praetorian soldier, and of three hundred to every man in the legionary cohorts composed of Roman citizens. Next followed a deliberation about funeral honors. Of those, the most imposing were thought fitting. The procession was to be conducted through the Gate of Triumph, on the motion of Gallus Asinius. The titles of the laws passed, the names of the nations conquered by Augustus were to be borne in front, on that of Lucius Aruntius. Messala Valerius further proposed that the oath of allegiance to Tiberius, should be yearly renewed, and when Tiberius asked him whether it was at his bidding that he had brought forward this motion, he replied that he had proposed it spontaneously, and that in whatever concerning the state he would use only his own discretion, even at the risk of offending. This was the only style of adulation which yet remained. The senators unanimously exclaimed that the body ought to be borne on their shoulders to the funeral pile the emperor left the point to them with disdainful moderation. He then admonished the people by a proclamation, not to indulge in that tumultuous enthusiasm which had distracted the funeral of the divine Julius, or express a wish that Augustus should be burnt in the Forum instead of in his appointed resting-place on the campus Martius. On the day of the funeral, soldiers stood round as a guard, amid much ridicule from those who had either themselves witnessed or had heard from their parents of the famous day, when slavery was still something fresh, and freedom had been resought in vain, when the slaying of Caesar the dictator seemed to some the vilest, to others the most glorious of deeds. Now, they said, an aged sovereign, whose power has lasted long, who had provided his heirs with abundant means to coerce the state, requires forsooth the defense of soldiers that his burial may be undisturbed. Then, followed much talk about Augustus himself, and many expressed an idle wonder, that the same day marked the beginning of his assumption of empire, and the close of his life, and again that he had ended his days at Nola, in the same house and room as his father Octavius. People extolled too the number of his consulships, in which he equaled Valerius Corvus and Gaius Marius combined, the continuance for thirty-seven years of the tribunician power, the title of imperator twenty-one times earned, and his other honors which had either frequently repeated, or were wholly new. Sensible men, however, spoke variously of his life with praise and censure. Some said that dutiful feelings towards a father, and the necessities of the state, in which the laws had then no place, drove him into civil war, which can neither be planned nor conducted by any right principles. He had often yielded to Antonius, while he was taking vengeance on his father's murderers often also to lepidus when the latter sank into feeble dotage and the former had been ruined by his profligacy the only remedy for his distracted country was a rule of a single man yet the state had been organized under the name neither of a kingdom nor a dictatorship but under that of a prince the ocean and remote rivers were the boundaries of the empire The legions, provinces, fleets, all things were linked together. There was law for the citizens, there was respect shown to the allies. The capital had been embellished on a grand scale. Only in a few instances had he resorted to force, simply to secure general tranquility. It was said, on the other hand, that filial duty and state necessity were merely assumed as a mask. It was really from a lust of sovereignty, that he had excited the veterans by bribery, when, had, when a young man and a subject raised an army, tampered with the consul's legions, and feigned an attachment to the faction of Pompeius. Then, when by a decree of the senate he usurped the high functions and authority of Praetor, when Hirtius and Pansa were slain, whether they were destroyed by the enemy, or Pansa by poison infused into a wound, Hirtius, by his own soldiers, and Caesar's treacherous machinations, he at once possessed himself of both their armies, wrested the consulate from a reluctant senate, and turned against the state the arms which he had been entrusted against Antonius. Citizens were proscribed, lands divided, without so much as the approval of those who executed these deeds, even granting that the deaths of Cassius and of the Bruti were sacrifices to a hereditary enmity though duty requires us to waive private feuds for the sake of the public welfare. Still, Pompeius had been deluded by the phantom of peace, and Lepidus by the mask of friendship. Subsequently, Antonius had been lured on by the treaties of Tarentum and Brundisium, and by his marriage with his sister, and had paid by his death the penalty of a treacherous alliance. No doubt there was peace after all this, but it was a peace stained with blood, there were the disasters of Lolius and Varus, the murders at Rome of the Varos, Ignatii, and Julii. The domestic life, too, of Augustus was not spared. Nero's wife had been taken from him, and there had been the farce of consulting the pontiffs, whether, with a child conceived and not yet born, she could properly marry. There were the excesses of Quintus Titius and Vadius Polio. Last of all, there was Livia, terrible to the state as a mother, terrible to the house of the Caesars as a stepmother. No honor was left for the gods when Augustus chose to be himself worshipped with temples and statues, like those of the deities, and with flamens and priests. He had not even adopted Tiberius as his successor out of the affection, or any regard to the state, but, having thoroughly seen his arrogant and savage temper, he had sought glory for himself by a contrast of extreme wickedness. For, in fact, Augustus, a few years before, when he was a second time asking from the Senate the tribunician powers for Tiberius, though his speech was complimentary, had thrown out certain hints as to his manners, style, and habits of life, which he meant as reproaches, while he seemed to excuse. However, when his obsequies had been duly performed, a temple with a religious ritual, was decreed him. After this, all prayers were addressed to Tiberius. He, on his part, urged various considerations. The greatness of the empire, his distrust of himself. Only, he said, the intellect of the divine Augustus was equal to such a burden. Called as he had been by him to share his anxieties, he had learnt by experience how exposed, to fortune's caprices, was the task of universal rule. Consequently, in a state which had the support of so many great men, they should not put everything on one man, as many, by uniting their efforts would more easily discharge public functions. There was more grand sentiment than good faith in such words. Tiberius's language, even in matters which he did not care to conceal, either from nature or habit, was always hesitating and obscure and now that he was struggling to hide his feelings completely, it was all the more involved in uncertainty and doubt. The senators, however, whose only fear was, lest they might seem to understand him, burst into complaints, tears, and prayers. They raised their hands to the gods, to the statue of Augustus, to the knees of Tiberius, when he ordered a document to be produced and read. This contained a description of the resources of the state, of the number of citizens and allies under arms, of the fleets and subject kingdoms, provinces, taxes, direct and indirect, necessary expenses, and customary bounties. All these details Augustus had written with his own hand, and had added a counsel that the empire should be confined to his present limits, either from fear or out of jealousy. Meantime, while the senate stooped to the most abject supplication, Tiberius happened to say that, although he was not equal to the whole burden of the state, yet he would undertake the charge of whatever part of it might be entrusted to him. Thereupon Asinius Gallus said, I ask you, Caesar, which part of the state you wish to have entrusted to you? Confounded by the sudden inquiry, he was silent for a few moments. Then, recovering his presence of mind, he replied that it would by no means become his modesty to choose, or to avoid in a case where he would prefer to be wholly excused. Then Gallus again, who had inferred anger from his looks, said that the question had not been asked, with the intention of dividing, what could not be separated, but to convince him, by his own admission, that the body of the state was one, and must be directed by a single mind. He further spoke in praise of Augustus, and reminded Tiberius himself of his victories, and of his admirable deeds for many years as a civilian. Still, he did not thereby soften the emperor's resentment for he had long been detested, from an impression that, as he had married Vipsania, the daughter of Marcus Agrippa, who had once been the wife of Tiberius, he aspired to be more than a citizen, and kept up the arrogant tone of his father, Asinius Polio. Next, Lucius Aruntius, who differed but little from the speech of Gallus, gave like offense, though Tiberius had no old grudge against him, but simply mistrusted him, because he was rich and daring. Had brilliant accomplishments and corresponding popularity for Augustus, when in his last conversations he was discussing who would refuse the highest place, though sufficiently capable, who would aspire to it without being equal to it, and who would unite both the ability and ambition, had described Marcus Lepidus as able but contemptuously indifferent, Gaius Asinius as ambitious but and incapable. Lucius Arruntius as not unworthy of it, and, should the chance be given him, sure to make the venture. About the two first, there is a general agreement, but instead of Arruntius, some have mentioned Nias Piso, and all these men, except Lepidus, were soon afterwards destroyed by various charges, through the contrivance of Tiberius. Quintus Haterius too, and Mamurcus Scorus, ruffled his suspicious temper. Haterius by having said, how long, Caesar, will you suffer the state to be without a head? Scorus, by the remark that there was a hope that the senate's prayers would not be fruitless, seeing that he had not used his right as tribune to negative the motion of the consuls, Tiberius instantly broke out into a vective against Haterius. Scorus, with whom he was far more deeply displeased, he passed over in silence. Wearied at last by the assembly's clamorous importunity, and the urgent demands of individual senators, he gave way by degrees, not admitting that he undertook empire, but yet ceasing to refuse it, and to be entreated. It is known that Hyterius, after having entered the palace to ask pardon, and thrown himself at the knees of Tiberius as he was walking, was almost killed by the soldiers, because Tiberius fell forward, accidentally, or from being entangled by the suppliant's hands. Yet the peril of so great a man did not make him relent, till Haterius went with entreaties to Augusta, and was saved by her very earnest intercessions. Great, too, was the Senate's sycophancy to Augusta. Some would have her styled parent, others mother of the country, and a majority proposed that, to the name of Caesar, should be added, son of Julia. The emperor repeatedly asserted that there must be a limit to the honors paid to women, and that he would observe similar moderation in those bestowed on himself. But annoyed at the invidious proposal, and indeed regarding a woman's elevation as a slight to himself, he would not allow so much as a lictor to be assigned her, and forbade the erection of an altar in memory of her adoption, and any like distinction. But for Germanicus Caesar, he asked proconsular powers, and envoys were dispatched to confer them on him, and also to express sympathy with his grief at the death of Augustus. The same request was not made for Drusus, because he was consul-elect and present at Rome. Twelve candidates were named for the praetorship, the number which Augustus had handed down, and, when the Senate urged Tiberius to increase it, he bound himself by an oath not to exceed it. It was then for the first time that the elections were transferred from the Campus Martius to the Senate, for up to that day, though the most important rested with the emperor's choice, some were settled by the partialities of the tribes. Nor did the people complain of having the right taken from them, except in mere idle talk, and the senate, being now released from the necessity of bribery and of degrading solicitations, gladly upheld the change, Tiberius confining himself to the recommendation of only four candidates, who were to be nominated without rejection or canvass. Meanwhile the tribunes of the people, asked leave to exhibit at their own expense games to be named after Augustus, and added to the calendar as the Augustales. Money was, however, voted from the exchequer, and though the use of the triumphal robe in the circus was prescribed, it was not allowed them to ride in a chariot. Soon the annual celebration was transferred to the praetor, to whose lot fell the administration of justice between citizens and foreigners. This, was the state of affairs at Rome, when a mutiny broke out in the legions of Pannonia, which could be traced to no fresh cause except the change of emperors, and the prospect it held out of license and tumult, and of profit from a civil war. In the summer camp three legions were quartered, under the command of Junius Blissus, who, on hearing of the death of Augustus and the accession of Tiberius, had allowed his men of rest from military duties, either for mourning or rejoicing. This was the beginning of demoralization among the troops, of quarreling, and of listening to the talk of every pestilent fellow, in short, of craving for luxury and idleness, and loathing discipline and toil. In the camp was one Percinius, who, having been a leader of one of the theatrical factions, then became a common soldier, had a saucy tongue, and had learnt from his applause of actors how to stir up a crowd by working on ignorant minds, which doubted as to what would be the terms of military service after Augustus, this man gradually influenced them in conversations at night, or at nightfall, and when the better men had dispersed, he gathered round him all the worst spirits. At last, when there were others ready to be abettors of a mutiny, he asked, in the tone of a demagogue, why, like slaves, they submitted to a few centurions, and still fewer tribunes, When, he said, will you dare to demand relief, if you do not go with your prayers or arms to a new and yet tottering throne? We have blundered enough in our tameness for so many years, and having endured thirty or forty campaigns, till we grow old, most of us with bodies maimed with wounds. Even dismissal is not the end of our service, but, quartered under a legion standard, we toil through the same hardships under another title. If a soldier survives so many risks, he is still dragged into remote regions where, under the name of lands, he receives soaking swamps or mountainous wastes. Assuredly, military service itself is burdensome and unprofitable. Ten is a day is the value set on life and limb. Out of this, clothing, arms, tents, as well as the mercy of centurions and exemptions from duty have to be purchased. But indeed, of floggings and wounds, of hard winters, wearisome summers of terrible war, or barren peace, there is no end. Our only relief can come from military life being entered on under certain fixed conditions, from receiving each the pay of a denarius, and from the sixteenth year terminating our service. We must be retained no longer under a standard, but in the same camp a compensation in money must be paid us. Do the praetorian cohorts, which have just got their two denarii per man, in which after 16 years i return to their homes encounter more perils we do not disparage the guards of the capital still here amid barbarous tribes we have to face the enemy from our tents end of book 1 part 1